When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that thinks death by chocolate is definitely the way I want to go, if I'm honest. Hello, pod. I'm Helen O'Harry, your host, and today I'm going to be talking about Wonka, the new film from Paddington and Paddington 2's Paul King, written by him and Salman Farnaby, uh, also of Paddington fame, and starring Timothée Chalamet as a younger version of Willy Wonka, yet to set up his chocolate factory, but already with a hat full of dreams. Joining me to discuss it today is Clarice Lockery, who's the chief film critic at The Independent and an all-round wonderful person. Hello, Clarice. How are you doing? Salutations. I should <laughs> do a Wonka-ish greeting. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about this movie, Chocolate. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of chocolate, I will say, so maybe I'm ill-suited. That's okay. I'm the this. biggest fan of chocolate. I've got us covered there. Good. Thank God. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about Wonka. Now, people at home may be listening to this and thinking, what are you talking about? Wonka's not a Christmas movie. I don't think there's a Christmas tree in it. There definitely isn't a Santa Claus. There's no sort of opening presents around a tree on Christmas Day. Is this even a Christmas movie? To which I would like to quote another musical of this year, okay? Wonka isn't a Christmas movie, but it is, kinda. Kinda, it is. I think it kinda is. Um <laughs> Thanks to Theatre really Camp good. for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Theatre Camp, if anybody hasn't seen it, fantastic film. Came out earlier this summer. Go watch it. It's brilliant. But it kind of is, right? It won't, I'm not mad here. I think to get right down to the root of the argument, when what it's what do we talk about when we talk about Christmas? Because obviously, you know, we have people who have... Uh, who are religious and who have, you know, the very religious interpretation. So we do have to set that aside for a moment. But I think obviously as well, there are lots of people who are um, not religious or, you know, don't really primarily see Christmas as a religious celebration. And you have to ask them, what does Christmas mean to you? And I think it, it's not just presents, tree, meal. It's about you know, a certain sense of family and homecoming um, and a thankfulness for the year that's come. And I think there are frequently films that are released around this time specifically because they they capture those emotions. And I think Wonka does 
wonderfully. And also it's quite Victorian and we, I think psychologically we, as, we associate all Victorian films with Charles Dickens somehow. <laughs> it all comes back to that. So yeah, I, th- I think th- right. So that's a really good point. Um, I want I want to unpack quite a lot of that, but let's let's start with the Victorian aspect because I think you're absolutely right. It does have that Vic- Victorian Dickensian feel. There was the Dan Stevens starring film a few years ago called The Man Who Invented Christmas, which essentially said that our modern concept of Christmas kind of comes from Charles Dickens to to a greater degree than we maybe credit it for. Um, that 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 idea of a Christmas feast in particular being a big deal comes from A Christmas Carol. It wasn't so much reflecting the world as as creating it in turn. And I think the, the film wildly overstated it, but I think there's probably a grain of truth in there. I think a lot of the solidification of our ideas of what Christmas is do only date back that far. I mean, the, the Christmas tree was popularised in the UK and I think then the US thanks to Prince Albert bringing it over from Germany, for example, during literally the Victorian era. So you have quite a lot of our sort of specifically Christmassy ideas going back to that time. Obviously, others date back way further. Mince pies have been around for longer. You know, the sort of fatted animal of whatever sort, usually traditionally a goose, I think now a turkey, that's, that's kind of got its roots further back. But a lot of these Christmas ideas do come from that era. And Maybe because several generations of people in both the UK and US grew up on adaptations of A Christmas Carol, we do tend to have that association. Even in Victorian stories that have nothing to do with Christmas, they still feel Christmassier than other eras. Yeah, I that is really interesting. And I guess because a lot of the the Victorian period was quite important to, in terms of developing I guess like a strong like aesthetic sense of terms of like cards. Yeah, cards, cards and came, yeah, and, during that and time, decorations. Yeah. And I guess developing a strong sense of the middle class who could afford all these things. I definitely think even beyond Dickens himself, that's really where the traditional, the tradition side of it comes from. And I guess even things like the, you know, lights, <laughs> electrical lights, <laughs> you know, obviously did not predate you know, that period. And that's a pretty big part of Christmas. Mm. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in much depth before, but you're very right. And I think a lot of that, yeah, with Wonka, the second that he turns up in that red velvet coat Mm. and we should point out the first scene, it's like an iced over ship and it's snowing. And so it's immediately, you know, wintertime, at least Christmas, I think it's quite subtly there, even if it's not overstated that this could be taking place at Christmas time. There are lots of little hints here and there that it's probably around December. Yeah. This film. Yeah. Is that right to say? I think so. I think it's okay. I mean, obviously I've, I've put it in the podcast, but I think it's also interesting what you were saying about the sort of the tone and the spirit of the film, because I think this is where people get... I think there's different ways of defining a Christmas film. And this is why the whole diehard nonsense becomes a big quote-unquote controversy every single year. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? The answer is yes, but who cares? As far as I'm concerned, I've, I've been very clear on that over the years. Absolutely. Call it a Christmas movie. That's fine. Why are you so obsessed with trying to persuade me that it's a Christmas movie? Why does it matter to you so much, people who are making this argument? But I think that's the thing. Die Hard maybe doesn't have a lot of that spirit in it, actually. Maybe at the end where, you know, he's reunited with his wife and they sort of 
kind of reaffirm their love for each other and go home to have a wonderful Christmas with their children. There, there are moments, of course, of, of goodness and hope and, and people working together and overcoming difficulties and all that kind of stuff in Die Hard. It does literally take place on Christmas Eve. You know, there are 100% ways to define Die Hard as a Christmas movie, and I'm not arguing against them. That's fine. But what it doesn't have, I think, is the level of warmth and sort of fellow feeling and community spirit and following dreams and these ideas that Wonka is all about. Does that seem fair? I feel like the test should be, can you show this movie on, let's say, TV from the 90s (laughs) in an old cottage somewhere out in the countryside, the fire is roaring a a spaniel is laying across your feet and you've got a blanket over your lap. Do you watch Die Hard in that circumstance or do you watch Wonka? I feel like it answers itself. I feel like that should be the test. And I would say, I'm sure there would be people who would put Die Hard on in that circumstance and I respect them for that. But I think think it comes down to what would you do in that situation? (laughs) So you're basically in the house from the holiday, right? That's that's what you're you've got in your head right now. And I did just describe the house. You did just describe the house from the holiday, pretty much. Yeah, I don't remember a spaniel, but basically everything else, hundred percent, is there. I think that's that's the test because (laughs) you're so right about warmth. It's the coziness, and you want to feel like you're hugged by the movie. And Die Hard is a great action film that does take place at Christmas and I've seen people make the argument that it makes them feel warm and cozy but I personally have never experienced it right because I'm just watching Bruce Willis walk on glass and I don't that doesn't make me feel cozy that makes me feel extremely uncomfortable because I don't like that idea and at the risk of starting a war with America which I definitely don't want to do LA is a much less Christmassy city than New York. Like, if personally, if I were going to be a Christmas yes. movie set in the US, I would 100% be set in New York rather than LA. I mean, Chicago at a pinch if you're John Hughes, but otherwise, you know, LA to me is, I mean, I've been there in December. I stayed in a very fancy hotel and they had a mulled apple juice uh, station in the lobby where you could just like at any point time of the day or night, just make yourself a mulled apple juice, stick a couple of sticks of cinnamon in there, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm not saying they don't do Christmas well. They do, but it doesn't look Christmassy is my is my argument, my very sophisticated take there. And I feel like, you know, that should also be maybe a little bit of a a little bit of a thing. Perhaps Australians are now shouting at me going, um, what does Christmassy look like to you? It's very different for us. Fair play to you. But um but yeah, for me the, the traditional kind of Christmassy snowy scape is much more effective. Yeah, I don't think it's controversial to say that there are Christmas cities and they are New York. And they are New York. They're London. Mm -hmm. And then I'd argue like Berlin with the German Christmas market. I think, you know, there are cities that can make the argument and they can make the argument more strongly than others. And I think LA's argument is fairly weak, (laughs) but LA is great for summertime. It's Mm -hmm. the beach party city. It's the Oscars city. You know, it has other qualities. And that's what's great about international cities is that they all have something that's very special okay. about them. I'm trying to be so nice. You are diplomatic. so diplomatic. You, I mean, <laughs> if, if it were up to me, I'd appoint you ambassador to the UN right now. That was that was superb. Um, but I mean, well, let's talk about the city, though. So Wonka comes to this, I think, if I remember correctly, completely unnamed city. 
uh, to set up his chocolate business, hoping to make it big. And what I really loved about this city, parts of it are shot in real locations around the UK. We know they did quite a lot in Bath. They do quite a lot in Oxford, which features very heavily in the film's last moments. And they do a lot in studio as well. They, they, they've also built some fantastic sets in studio and given themselves the room and the, and the scale to do these big dance numbers and everything else. But what, what fascinated me was actually when we sort of pulled back a little bit and went on sort of, you know, maybe a CG-assisted trip around the, the, the rooftops of this city and around the, the kind of wider cityscape. And it felt like I was seeing bits of different European cities. It felt like Paul King was working really hard to keep everything feeling native to somebody somewhere, you know, um, or at least as broad a selection of somebody's as possible. So there was a building I was like, that. I feel like I've seen that in Prague. I feel like that's Venice. I feel like that's London. I feel like that's Paris. You know, it felt like there was a real effort to at least kind of, at least Euro travel. I don't know if they went for much further than that, but there is a real kind of lovely non-specificity to it. I agree. I think do they use because I know the yeah Oxford you mentioned they the Bridge of Sighs you know the recreation yeah. of Venice's Bridge of Sighs I think is in the movie. Yes, right? it is. I might be the, confusing it with Saltburn. No, it is. There, there is a moment where <laughs> a, a giraffe uh, has to pass under the Bridge of Sighs from Oxford. Yes. So, which I think yeah that you know obviously is in Oxford but is a a Venice landmark. Yes. <laughs> And I would also argue, I think Americans would see maybe, you know, the older parts of their cities, older Boston, older, I know, older Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Those buildings, a little, there's a little bit, it's very subtle, but I think, and you see it as well in the, in the variation and accents. It's a very non, which is true of the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And also the Tim Burton film, mm. if I remember correctly, is that it's it's just trying to be a sort of in within your childlike imagination and your childhood memory. That's the location in which this takes place. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it's nowhere in particular, it's but in Wonka, it's a little bit you know Victorian turn of the century. We're going to go with that. Yeah, I, I I think as well. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. The well we can talk perhaps about accents in a minute, but one of the things that actually absolutely drove me nuts about the Tim Burton, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that you have Freddie Highmore doing a, well, his, his, I think, native English accent, very clear, you know, quite posh Southern English accent, and then talking about candy instead of sweets, which yeah. is a thing that there, there certainly has been a trend of American films doing that. They don't trust children especially to understand different words for things that they have. And look, I grew up reading like Paula Danziger and Judy Bloom books and this kind of thing and being at times completely baffled. I didn't understand what bangs were. I didn't understand what penny loafers were for a long time. I didn't understand barrettes. These these were completely foreign words to me, but they didn't put me off the books because I was into the story and I gradually figured out if you're cutting bangs into your hair, maybe that's like a fringe. Okay. But it took, it took a little while. I feel like film producers, maybe I'm not necessarily blaming the writers or directors don't always trust, especially a child audience to, to make those kind of leaps. And what I, I quite liked about this film, and I haven't really focused on this because nothing jumped out and annoyed me about it, but this feels as did the Paddington films, very much rooted in British sensibilities, British humour, 
and just hoping that those will translate widely, that hoping that if you be true to yourself, essentially, or you're true to your own kind of native things that you find funny, that you find interesting, that that will travel rather than trying to kind of impose some kind of homogeneity from above. Mm, it's true because you could, you can read the city in Wonka as being as we said, an amalgamation of all European and perhaps American cities. But I think also you could see it, and I think maybe I saw it as this, as it being London, but, you know, as the celebration of a diverse and like very culturally diverse London, which is obviously such a core theme of the Paddington yes. films, and which I, I quite like of just, you know, and it's not, it's not really foregrounded, but it's just a part of the fabric of this film. And yeah, I don't think nothing, nothing jumped out to me. I, <laughs> and you mentioned this previously off air, <laughs> um, but Sally Hawkins's accent is the only thing that mm. I went, this is an interesting choice. I don't know why, if she chose to do the accent, if she was told to do an accent, what was, yeah, what was the reason? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a little confounding. I, I, I felt like it was you know, they, they seem to be on a long boat, right? At that point when they're, when he's a child, yes. there's flashbacks to him as a child and she's his mother. And, um, and so maybe it was a, a suggestion of like a traveler community, you know, almost the sort of Johnny Depp and Chocolat. I don't know if it was a deliberate reference to that, but you know, maybe there was kind of an element of that in it, but it was very odd to me. And I, and it didn't strike me as it's not the worst Irish accent I've heard in the last two weeks. Um, not even close, but it is not perfect either. And she has such a beautiful voice and a beautiful accent in herself. I, I did feel it was a little unnecessary. So I'm not sure what that added, but I mean, honestly, that's my biggest quibble with the film. And, and so I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I think I, we, we should say, I mean, I certainly, adored this film. I, I was just grinning like an idiot throughout. I feel like you were pretty up on it, it's fair to say as well. I, yeah, I think it's so sweet. It's so lovely. I have my own specific criticisms of it that, that I'm sure we can get into, but I think overall it's just, I love just being free from cynicism for a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and especially in a musical context, uh, because one of my favourite movies period is Mary Poppins. And this to me reminded me, I feel like this could have taken place in the Mary Poppins universe mm. because it has the same, it has the same tone and, and attitude to other people and humanity and children and hope and imagination. And there's just something to me that I find very nourishing about this kind of story so I'm excited to double bill. Uh, maybe not Wonka with Mary Poppins. I think Wonka with Mary Poppins returns. Okay. Okay. Like, Interesting. Right. I feel like Mary Poppins, that's too, it's a bit too much of a, <laughs> it would feel bad for Wonka in that situation. <laughs> Wonka and Mary Poppins returns. I feel like they fit together very neatly. So sort of modern, big studio musicals, maybe reflecting back on or linking back to a, a well-loved classic. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, or a specific time in musical history, because I really enjoyed the era of, you know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Mary Poppins. And um, I'm forgetting all of them now. <laughs> Sound of Music <laughs> um, and stuff like that as Sound well. of Music and Babes in Toyland, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Like there's this whole range of musicals that I think are all, yeah, sort of like kind of, 
aspirationally the same. They all, they're all sort of wanting to do the same thing. And they all came out within this, I would say late fifties, early to mid sixties era where there was a real British influence. And then we just lost that. (laughs) And now I would like, I would love to see a bit of that creep back in. And I feel like we have, I think Paddington, Paddington 2 has a bit of that. I think Mary Poppins Returns had a lot of that. I think this does. Greatest Showman movie Um, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a little more growing up, but it's, it's trying for the same It is a little more jazz hands, but it's trying for a lot of the same energy. I I, I wonder, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about that before, but that era, I wonder if it was basically killed off by around the world in 80 days, which was one of the famous kind of mega budgeted flops of the late sixties. And that was very much, again, trying to be part of that legacy, trying to be part of that kind of tone of musical. Yeah. I think that, and also, um, you know, just when you were getting into the late sixties, politically, globally, what was happening. That's, you know, in the wider scope of Hollywood, we see all the cynicism kick in. And in general, the musical, it, yeah, shifted quite dramatically. And it's interesting that we're in quite a cynical time now, but I I feel like there's almost the opposite thing where someone's gone, oh, actually people, it's so dark and cynical now that maybe people need this just to take a break for five minutes and then we can go back to all that stuff. Hi everybody, my name's Helen. And I'm Kobe. And we're from Flixwatcher, a podcast in the strip media family. We are a movie podcast and we review films that are just on Netflix in the UK. So if you've ever struggled to find a film on Netflix to watch, we're the podcast for you. We have guests on from other podcasts, big and small, just like these guys that you listen to now. They choose the films and we rate them and discuss them with our unique scoring system. You can find Flixwatcher on any podcast app by searching Flixwatcher. That's F-L-I-X Watcher. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.strips.media to find out more. We should talk about the music a little bit. So so we do have two songs or two variations of songs from the 1971... Yes, nineteen seventy one. Nineteen seventy one. Yes, so we do have we do have pure imagination and the Oompa Loompa melody from that, but we also have new songs by Neil Hannon. Um, and I'm a bit of a Divine Comedy fan anyway. I think he's a very good lyricist. I really mm-hmm. love um some of their big hits. I've been to a concert. Chris Hewitt, one of my colleagues, is a big fan, and he took me along. Um, and I thought they stood up really well. I think that can be a real problem if you're sequelizing, prequelizing or remaking a musical of the past, it can be incredibly difficult to get anything that feels right next to something like Pure Imagination. In fact, I went to the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory um, stage show a few years ago, and literally all of the songs I heard in that were like, eh, until they got to Pure Imagination. I'm like, oh, this is so much better. Oh boy. And I didn't fully have that here. I still was happy to hear it. It's a beautiful song, but I didn't feel like oh, this is head and shoulders above everything else we've just heard, you know? So for me, at least, the music really worked. I agree. And I I feel like I want to say this, <laughs> to go back to Mary Poffins Returns, because I remember when that film came out, everyone was like, mm, the songs aren't very catchy. I don't like this. They're not memorable. And I've seen a little bit of that around Wonka as well. And I 
I live, I love Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I know he's obviously involved in Mary Poppins Returns and Hamilton is great, but I feel like, <laughs> like the Lin-Manuel Mirandification of the musical has sort of, has hurt these more traditional style of songs, which are not built around a big catchy earworm, you know, we don't talk about Bruno style, uh, hook. It's about the pleasure of, of, you know, the little melodies. And there's a laundry song in this where they have the refrain of scrub, scrub and scrub, scrub is not catchy. It's not a catchy thing, but it's so, I, I, it's just so pleasing to the ears. And I love that. And there's a song that's quite I would say Beatles-esque mm-hmm. when he's in the chocolate shop, kind of introducing the shop to everyone. I thought that was fantastic. I'm I'm a big I'm a big defender of the songs in this, I will say. Yeah. And the thing about catchiness is you forget that you have heard probably the songs from Mary Poppins every, I don't know, Christmas, Easter Bank holiday, you name it, since you were yay high. They weren't necessarily catchy the first time. You know, they're catchy because you've heard them so many times. So, I, I mean, the the soundtrack to this, as we record, just dropped yesterday. So I've only listened to it like twice so far. But there will be more listens in my future. And I fully expect to be absolutely fluent in these songs by Christmas. You know, So there is um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there to enjoy. So tell me about then your issues with the movie. Tell, let's let's discuss some of the, the stuff that you were a little bit more mixed on, maybe. Well, I, I think it's, I don't think this tonally fits in with the 1971 mm. film. It's a bit odd because it is a prequel and it's sort of not a prequel. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of my issues come from where the film does actually try to link back to Roald Dahl because I think it sort of goes to the, the parts of that that I do not like. I think one is there are a series of fat jokes that involve a fat suit on an actor that I just like, I just don't find funny. And I feel like if you're going to make a film that is all about kindness and acceptance and being kind to other people and like, you know, the forgotten outcast people, then it's, it's, it's an odd lane to take, but I know obviously that comes from the Augustus Gloop stuff from the actual book but I've never liked that so this is just my personal stance on it and also I (laughs) Hugh Grant is great I thought he's very funny I laughed a lot when he's in his little first class seat and he's got the eye mask on his performance is fantastic but I don't know if we really needed to have the Oompa Loompa because it brings with it again, a lot of issues because I know the dwarfism community has very complicated feelings about Oompa Loompas. I know there's like some people who are arguing, you know, if you're going to have Oompa Loompas on screen, we should be able to play them. You know, this is taking work away from us. And there are other actors with dwarfism who say, yeah, I don't want to ever see that again mm-hmm. because it's been used as such a weapon yeah. by, you know, even people in the playground And then also (laughs) there's the whole, you know, colonialist aspect of how did the Oompa Loompas end up working in the factory? And I will say, you know, Paul King and Simon Farnaby do try to rewrite this origin story to fix that issue. But it has that, 
I don't know if it, I've noticed in a lot of sequels and uh, modern adaptations, they try to do this thing where they try to fix it. And it feels so <laughs> like, like child turning in the homework going, is this okay? And you go, no, it's not, but I see that you tried. So <laughs> good for you. It, it, like I see that they tried and I appreciate that they tried to do something. I think fundamentally you can't fix that because yeah. it is just a story from the past. I, and- feel, I feel like with, with Oompa Loompas, no, they do have a, an obnoxious origin in the books because I think the first time he wrote them, they were essentially written as as pygmies, as an actual yeah. race of people in Africa. Um, and, and he then sort of reinvented them to be a less offensive stereotype and... and and I will say in the book, as it currently stands, they are something like the size of a doll and they are eight inches high. And they've mm-hmm. kind of leaned into that, I think, for this film in an attempt to get away from exactly those issues about the dwarfism yes. community. And so it clearly is a sort of non-human character. It's almost like having a fairy or having a, you know, a, a, a hobbit or something rather than being a small person. So I, I, I see what they're trying to do. I agree with you. They're trying to address it. And and I still was a bit like, okay, but it didn't trip me as much as sometimes watching the original does, you know. Um, <laughs> but then I haven't been subject to those taunts. I haven't been subject to that kind of abuse in the name of the characters in this film. So, you know, I, I understand that it's going to be a flashpoint for people. In terms of feeling like a... I'm really interested though in getting into this this idea of feeling like a prequel or feeling connected to the 1971 film. Because I read the book, it was one of the first what I called chapter books I ever read. And I read the book a bunch. I loved it. And I had, for some weird reason, I hadn't seen the Gene Wilder film until a couple Mm. of years after that. So by the time I got to it, I was like, who the hell is this? This isn't Willy Wonka. I don't like this guy. This is nasty. And and I never liked uh, the fact that in the in the 1971 film, Charlie and his grandfather also break the rules as they go around the factory. Uh, that to me yes. invalidates the whole point of Charlie being the good guy at the end of the tour. Like how do you how do you make that call? So I hated that particularly. But but I didn't love I didn't unabashedly totally love Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka. I think he has incredible moments. I think he's an incredible actor. But he was so malevolent at times that I was kind of like, that's not the guy in my head. And now this guy is, I would say, nicer than the guy in my head. Gene Wilder is less nice than the guy in my head. But but I'm not as wedded to it. And I know a lot of people have tripped on that. A lot of reviews that I've read have sort of said, I don't see how this pure-hearted, lovely Wonka, even with the addition of years of kind of paranoia about people stealing his recipes, which is the canon of why Willy Wonka becomes a sort of recluse, I don't see how this guy gets to that stage. Um, and my argument then, I guess, is I don't want him to. <laughs> you, you've hit the nail on the head that I think because they include pure imagination and they also have Hugh Grant be the Oompa Loompa from the 1971 film. I, that's what tripped me up because I could believe this as a prequel to the actual book. I think there is more of a, a connection. Certainly this has n- really not as dark as any of Dahl's writing. 
and like kind of missing, you know, because he does have a bit of that nastiness in his writing. That's kind of that's his famous trademark. <laughs> and really, this is this is Paddington verse. This is everything is sweet and wonderful and lovely all of the time. Except for the slightly like the villains are the villains like, are pantomime, I think, yeah. Yeah. And rightly so. I'm not I'm not arguing that they should be nuanced, particularly in this context. Or are you? I yeah, I think I think it's trying to connect it to the film mm-hmm. is where my brain goes, no, because I could not watch Wonka and then go straight into the 1971 film mm-hmm. and see that tunnel scene. That's why I always think of the tunnel scene where they go on the chocolate river down the tunnel and there's like a chicken being decapitated. The parents are screaming. <laughs> And Gene Wilde is like, hey. <laughs> you're laughing. Yeah. But no, it's like the Joker. It's it's such an odd scene that I, I think is very, um, it's very 1970s <laughs> psychedelic uh, of its era. And I kind of like it mm. because it's bizarre, but there's obviously absolutely nothing like that in this film. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I they've been a bit they've been a bit odd about how they've been selling it because I don't know how I'm going. I'm meant to go into the film. If if you you mean if you're meant to go in as a full prequel or if it's yeah. just another adventure. Like, does about- he grow up to be Gene Wilder or does he just grow up to be another Willy Wonka yeah. up there in in the different? Is this a TVA situation <laughs> <laughs> where he splits off and he becomes just older Timothy Chalamet? Yeah, the the time variant authority there. If anybody hasn't watched Loki, go watch Loki. It's Sorry. really really fun. Um, <laughs> just just putting in context. Um, but yeah, I I know what you mean. I I just I guess I didn't I just didn't focus on that because, like I say, I'm not wedded to the Gene Wilder, so I was a bit like. Uh, if it's connected, fine. If it isn't, fine. But I, f- I feel like the it is. You're right. It is interesting that they have those two songs in there. If it isn't a prequel, if it isn't a direct link, but there is the possibility. I mean, do you think they're planning on a sort of an in between film? Do you think there'll be a kind of Wonka two, where you see him maybe get a little bit more controlling, where you see him build the factory in more than his imagination? You know, there is the potential. I don't know though if we want to see that. Do we want to see this character? descend into paranoia and seclusion i personally would say no at the moment no i don't i don't really need the revenge of the sith of the <laughs> one of us <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't need the umpa lumpas being like you are my brother <laughs> you were supposed to save us from not having enough cocoa beans <laughs> but i'm sure they will make a sequel if this makes enough money mm. so i don't think i have much choice <laughs> in the situation. I will say that I'm just, I'm just very glad that uh, Paul King is getting, you know, big studio money to do whatever he wants. I think that the the Paddington films are so miraculous. Um, This has so much of that same charm and energy and goodness of heart. I I want him to be making films from now till Kingdom Come. I will say, is it... uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if this is a very, very small spoiler to say musically how the film ends i think that's i think that's a good we do do spoilers here so if you're spoiler reverse turn away for a few minutes very very small spoiler but the film does end with timothee chalamet singing pure imagination and i think you know partly his sincerity as a performer i just think he's incredibly talented and also the way that the film's constructed 
the second he opened his mouth, I just started crying because yeah. it's just Same. so beautifully done. Um, and I don't, it, I didn't, it didn't come across cynical at all to me. I didn't even think about it until after the credits rolled of going, oh, they ended the movie with the big song that everyone knows. I was just like, oh, <laughs> oh, that really does wrap up the journey that we've just had. I think it adds, it somehow adds more context to what the song is than is already in the original film. Yeah. It's just, oh. it's, it is, it is absolutely beautiful. The way it's used in that, in that moment, the emotion of the moment is I think gorgeous and and yeah we should talk a li- just a little bit more about uh, Timothée Chalamet because I feel like I I didn't really know what to expect from him and I think by the way this shares something with the Paddington films um, well it shares quite a lot but it shares the fact that the trailer in no way does it justice it no way gets across just how emotional and how warm the film is going to be. And one of the things that I think it, it sells short is his performance, is this idea of, um, because he is so wide-eyed and bushy-tailed in this, he's so optimistic, he's so determined that he has something here that if he can just get out to people, everything is going to be okay. And 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 his, his kind of, you know, he can be single-minded, he can be obsessive, he can be in, inconsiderate of others at times in this. But he also has just such a purity of of aim or something that it's very hard not to root for him in every single second he's on screen. And he has such a lovely relationship as well with Calla Lane's Noodles, who is um, just a brilliant foil to him and a brilliant a brilliant teacher as well. I think they both teach each other things. It's not a sort of he's saving her or he's showing her the ways of the world as the older you know member of that of that duo. It's very much the opposite as well. And I just thought that central kind of emotional relationship, that central pair of characters worked so, so well together. My favourite scene is when they're milking the giraffe (laughs) and the song that they sing. And she sings, for a moment, I forgot to be sad. And I was like, gosh, what a heartbreaking, beautiful thing to have in a movie. And I think, you know, that's really what he offers her. He's almost like a bit of a manic pixie dream boy. <laughs> he <laughs> like, absolutely is, 100%. You know, obviously a completely platonic one, but, yeah. you know, he, he comes along and, and he's just like, I'm just going to add all this wonder and imagination in, into your world. And I think going back to this idea of what makes a Christmas film, for a lot of kids, if you've had a bit of a difficult year, this idea that you can put everything just to the side, you know, maybe if you've had, you know, difficulties with family, but if you can have a nice Christmas, I mean, obviously sometimes you can't have a nice Christmas, but if you can, it's a moment to just put everything to the side and just be joyful and be happy and forget to be sad for a day. Ugh, just great. I was like one small, I, I think he's fantastic. It's again, another thing of connecting back to the Gene Wilder is <laughs> he wrote in my review that he he has more newsy energy than he does Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with Timothee Chalamet, I think what makes him such a fantastic, like he is a star to yeah. me. Yeah, 100%. He is a movie star. Is He's a really, he's just normal. He's just a, such a normal guy. And that's why in Bones and All, it works so well because he made it, it's such a likable cannibal. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're like, oh, I get it. I get everything. Because, you know, and I think here, 
he sold everything you said about the the wide-eyed wonder and the enthusiasm of Wonka. He did perfectly. It was any time he had to do the, it's absolutely insane. And he'd have to like kind of cock his head like a spaniel. I was like, I don't quite buy that. I don't <laughs> buy that he's an insane person. Um, I, I think there are other young actors of his generation that are doing that part at the moment. <laughs> so what, they should have got Barry Keoghan in just for those bits. Just for those. Just for those moments. It cuts moments. away. It cuts yeah. away to him in the hat. Just in the hat, yeah, absolutely. And then it goes back. Back to Timmy. <laughs> I will say, I'm, I met uh, I met Chalamet on set of the first Dune movie mm. and I didn't have, they, they, they didn't have a lot of time so they were literally saying, he and Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson kind of came over and said hello but then had to basically go straight back to work. So it literally was like a two minutes. It wasn't a proper sit down interview, but he, he really has huge or did at that time, obviously it's what four or five years ago now. He, he had huge puppy dog energy. And I don't mean that to sound belittling. He was just so interested. He, he had all these questions for me. He was like, where have you come from? How long are you here for? What have you seen? What, you know, what's going on? Hey. And he was just and he seemed that way with everybody. That wasn't something he was putting on for press. And it kind of fits with what I've seen in interviews. It fits with what I've seen from him uh, in other places. I think he's he's genuinely interested in people. And I think perhaps, well, a lot more than, than Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka. But that kind of energy and that kind of curiosity about the world, I think, lends itself very well to this kind of young, excited, enthusiastic character. Um, and, and the fact that throughout the film, no matter how many times you knock Wonka down, he keeps kind of bouncing back up because that feels very much like part of the same sort of energy to me. So so that in, in that way, I mean, I think this is far closer in some respects to his character than the kind of interiority and stillness of Apollo Atreides in Dune. You know, th this actually, if anything, feels a bit closer to his, at least the persona that I've seen, you know. Although I would say the reason he's so good as Paul is that he has enough of that element to to allow us to yeah. to connect with Paul because I think it's very easy to play that character as just <laughs> just existing <laughs> brain filled with spice. Absolutely. But I think I love so much about when he him his performance in Dune is that is the little glimmers of the Chalamet. <laughs> like when he's kind of like just being a boy for, for 30 seconds, then he has to go back to being this leader. And that seals the deal of the character for me. 100%. Yeah, very much. What he brings to Dune is sort of what he brings to Wonka. <laughs> so, so I kind of do see them as the same character in my head, I guess. So, so so let's just recap here. So for people making a watch list at home, we've got Loki season one and two. We have uh, Theatre Camp and we have Dune. Uh, you need to get after all three of this. And Bones and all, why not? Let's also see Wonka playing a cannibal. Dune can be a Christmas film. Dune is definitely a Christmas film in my house. Are you kidding me? For sure. Spice. Spice. <laughs> what could be more Christmassy than Spice. Absolutely. The big worm is like Santa delivering presents. Okay. But he's delivering like the prophecy. Uh-huh. Sure. Was that Tadarak? Um, it's it's very much a family focused <laughs> film. It's all about, you know, families. Okay, they're at war, but yeah. they're still families. Oscar Isaac kind of looks like Santa in it. He's, he's got, got that beard. great streaky beard. He really does. Yeah. Well, you've sold it to me. Dune is a Christmas movie. <laughs> Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yeah. And so is Wonka. It's not just about, is there a tree in it? Does anybody sing Baby It's Cold Outside? It is about 
a certain kind of spirit. Clarice, thanks so much for joining us. We should say people can find you uh, on in The Independent, obviously reviewing films. Also, you have a, a podcast of your own. You have Fade to Black. Fade to Black, where I also just talk about Dune a lot. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about other movies, I promise. Uh, and yeah, anything else, um, I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter, X, and other locations. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, Wonka is out in cinemas now, people, as you're listening to this. So um, do go and have a look. It's utterly delightful and we all want more from Paul King. I personally really want him to um, be put in charge of adapting some Terry Pratchett books. This is my personal bugbear, but I think he is the one man in the world that I would trust with that. I think he could really do it. Yes, because I I know Sky used to make Mm. those and I always quite enjoyed the TV adaptations, but... And good omens, I guess. Yeah. Has someone really attempted to make a like a big movie? Not really, I would personally say. There was a terrible TV series uh, from the BBC, kind of, um, about a year ago, which we just don't talk about at all, just to be clear, okay. at all, ever. Which one would you adapt? I, I mean, if we're talking Christmas movies, there is The Hogfather, um, yeah. which is a Christmas book. Um, but I would actually probably do some witches books because they're my favourite. So I'm just saying. Anyway, he can also do Diana Wynne-Jones if he's interested. That's also fine. I think he would be good at those. Yes. But that's enough from us. Clarice, thank you so much and Merry Christmas. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.